0: Good morning to you, if you have your Bible and take it, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, For those of you who I might not know, my name is Matt Stewart. I serve as one of the pastors here. We gave Pastor Ronnie the day off, so he's resting and uh, I have the privilege of getting to dive into God's Word with you this morning. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you have done through your son, Jesus. And I ask now that you would prepare our hearts to receive the food of your word, that by it we would be nourished, that we we would grow up in the faith, and that we would be strengthened to serve you. And if there's anyone here, Father, who doesn't know you, who doesn't have a right relationship with you, Lord, would today be the day that in your mercy, you would open their hearts to receive the good news of the gospel, that they would be saved. You alone deserve all honor and all glory and all praise. And as a result of receiving your word today, may we go out worshiping you and praising you and adoring you. Father, I ask that my speech and my message wouldn't be with plausible words of wisdom, but that they would be a demonstration of your spirit and of your power so that our faith wouldn't rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we love you. We ask these things by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, I grew up hunting with my dad. It's usually a a Saturday tradition. And around 10, 11, 12 my dad deemed me, whether it was right or not, responsible enough to sit in the tree stand by myself on a hunt. Now, if you're not familiar with hunting, you don't know what a tree stand is. It's a stand that leans up against a tree and you sit in that and you hunt from that vantage point. Some people might think that's cheating. Others might think it's smart. Either way, that's what I was doing that day. And I was excited and scared to death at the same time. Because it meant for the next several hours I was going to be sitting alone quite a a bit off the ground. And I was just one hope to survive. And number two, maybe see a deer and and maybe even get to harvest it. But dad walked away and reminded me as he was walking away, now I'm going to come back, so just sit tight. And so that just kind of stuck in my mind, like, okay, dad's coming back, so I'm just going to sit here and I've got my safety harness on and I've got a snack and it's a beautiful day and I'm just going to enjoy it. Well, hours go by and as anyone who's hunted knows, there's a difference between hunting and killing, right? Uh, You don't always get to actually kill something. Most of the time it's just hunting and it's just searching and waiting. And I remember that day just sitting there in the tree stand and And enjoying it, but all of a sudden, you know, things start to fall apart. So no more snacks. It's starting to get colder, starting to get darker. And I haven't seen a thing out here. And as that happens, my fear just grows. And I start to think to myself, this is it. This is how I'm going to go out. 11 years old, in a tree stand, on the side of a mountain. That's how Matt Stewart goes out. But right in that moment where it's the last light, I'm starting to hear owls hoot in the background and I'm hearing leaves wrestle and branches break and I don't care if it's a deer at this point, I'm just scared. I remember hearing my dad whistle. And that's how dad let us know that he was in the area so that we didn't shoot him. And to let us know he was there. And I tell you what, I had never heard a sound so sweet in my entire life. And it's so funny how the presence of my dad Uh, It took me from being scared to death to being this avid hunter who I probably saw the big one and just let him get away. You know what I'm saying? But dad's presence made all the difference in the world. And just knowing that he was coming back allowed me to be able to endure that first lone hunt by myself. Now, when we look at first Peter, we see people who are in a similar situation. They've been saved. Jesus has said, I'm going to the father I'm going to send the helper and I'm coming back for you. And that's great unless you dive into the world of first Peter and understand these Christians are suffering for their faith. Not only is it a hard world to live in, but when the emperor is Nero and he has a tendency to uh, impale Christians on poles and light them on fire so that they can light the way for his guests as they come to his palace for a party, you begin to think, okay, that's not such a friendly environment for Christianity. It's helpful that we pull back sometimes and we consider what brothers and sisters have walked through in life so that as we endure hardship, we might look back to their example. But just as We walked through hardship. They walked through hardship. And there was something that Peter wanted them to know in order that they might have a living hope. Not just wishful thinking, but assurance that Jesus is, in fact, coming back. Let's take our Bibles and look at 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1, but we're going to be looking specifically at verses 3 through 5 today. Here's what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood... in the last time. Here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. If you don't hear anything else, walk away with this. God deserves all praise for the salvation He has accomplished and secured for His people. God alone deserves all the praise for the salvation that He has not only accomplished, but also secured for His people. But why exactly does he deserve the praise for that? What makes it so great that we should worship him? You always ask good questions whenever I preach. So in answer to that, there are two facets of this salvation that I want us to look at in detail in dissecting verses 3 through 5 so that we might understand why it is that we even do this on a Sunday morning. Why is it that a bunch of people gather in a room and sing Why is it that we're told to go and worship? Why does it matter? Well, let's look at these two facets here. Number one, I want you to see the God of our salvation. The God of our salvation. Look again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that Peter starts out this way. And most of the writers of the New Testament do that. Because so long as we focus on ourselves, we won't truly worship. And note that I say truly worship because you will worship something. The question is, will it be the living God or yourself or images or idols that you fashion for yourself? And Peter starts with this vision of who God is. So who is he? Well, Peter tells us a few things about this God. Number one, he tells us about his identity. His identity. Now, Pastor Ronnie told us last week that God the Father is the one who appointed our salvation. God the Spirit is the one who applies our salvation. And God the Son is the one who accomplished our salvation. One God, eternally existing as three persons, working together to bring about a right relationship with Him by means of the cross of Jesus Christ. And notice how he says this, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is, sounds almost Old Testament in nature, a typical way of praising God, of blessing people in God's name, yet there is a huge difference. It's not just Yahweh that's identified here, it's the God and father of our lord jesus christ in other words the way we come to identify the christian god the god of the bible is by looking to the revelation of god in the person of jesus christ you and i don't know god in an experiential relational way apart from god revealing himself in his son jesus And Jesus is not a lesser deity. That's why Peter calls Him Lord. The word that would be used in the Old Testament for Yahweh. Jesus Christ is God. And He has revealed the Father's heart to His people. Most notably, at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, as you read through the Old Testament and you wonder, what is he like? You look forward to the New Testament, to the cross, and see the justice and the mercy of God meet in the person of his son. That's who this God is that Peter is telling us about. And it's, it's, it's so important that we understand who he is if we are to understand what he has done. Notice also his character. His character. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Think of it. Of all the ways that God could have described Himself to us through these writers, He emphasizes His mercy. Think back to when God is standing with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai there in Exodus 34 and God reveals himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you're reading with us through the Bible this year, you'll notice that this morning in Psalm 100, we are told to bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That is massive that we understand that. Because the Bible paints this picture of God in his holiness and out in us in our sinfulness. We don't deserve a relationship with God. In fact, from birth, we've done everything opposite of having a relationship with God. And that's why Scripture calls us, even in Ephesians 2, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We have put our proverbial fist in the air and said, no, thank you, I will live my way. Or as Romans 3, quoting Psalm 14, reminds us that all have sinned, that we're all unrighteous, that we've all gone our own way, that no one even seeks after God. But God, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him. By what is it? Grace. By grace you have been saved. What does that mean? It means you've done nothing to deserve the salvation that you've received. It is a gift of God. Not because He foresaw who you would be. Not because He foresaw what you would do. In fact, despite what He saw, He chose to set His love on you. He chose to rescue you from your sin. It is this God of mercy who has saved us. But we also see His sovereignty his sovereignty because you see it's according to his mercy that he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead what is God's sovereignty well when we look throughout scripture we come away with the idea that God's sovereignty is his authority and ability to carry out his will God is both authoritative and able to do all that He desires, and because He's holy, everything He desires to do is good. We have no right to question Him, in other words. He is holy, holy, holy. And yet God, in this mercy, reached down to sinners who not only were unable to save themselves, but were running away from God. And he intervened, he stepped in, and he did something we could not do. How many of you were involved in your physical birth? No one? Oh, that's right, because you didn't do anything, right? Someone else had something to do with that. You were the product of that. That's precisely what spiritual rebirth is. You have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. It is God who causes you to be born again to a living hope. You know, I think about when we adopted our daughter. I remember going to her birth mother's sonogram, her ultrasound, and seeing her in her mother's womb. We knew nothing about the young lady she would become. We knew nothing about what her physical features would be like. And yet, despite not knowing any of that, we said, she's ours. We volunteer to be her parents. Nothing obligated us to do that. We did it because we wanted to. And by God's grace, she became our daughter. She became a steward. Now, think about that. Think about not only... Does God choose to make you his son or daughter? But unlike human adoption, he knows who you will become. He knows what you will do. You will do everything you can to run away from him, and yet he says, mine. You will be my son. You will be my daughter. I choose you. And he sets his love on us from before the foundations of the world, and he executes a plan where he brings us into a right relationship with himself. Salvation from start to finish is of the Lord. Now, anytime you start talking through these sorts of things like election or predestination or how God has caused us to be born again, that's inevitably going to make people kind of squirm in their seat a little bit, right? After all, we live in a country where we are free to do what we want, And yet, when we come to words like this, it's not about Calvinism or Arminianism. And if you don't know what those terms are, don't worry about it. In fact, if that's what your mind runs to whenever you read a passage like this or you hear words like this, in humility, you're doing it wrong. Because these words, these ideas like election and predestination and God causing us to be born again are meant to comfort suffering people. In other words, how does this group of Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor suffering under Emperor Nero, what sort of assurance do they have that even if Emperor Nero comes for them, that they will be safe in the arms of God? The comfort is that God in his mercy chose them from before the foundations of the world and he sent his son and he wooed them by his spirit so that they would be born again to a living hope. And because he started the work, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And because they are safe in his arms, they can know even if suffering comes for me, I belong to him. God's sovereignty in salvation is about comfort for suffering people, not winning theological debates. It should humble us and bring us to our knees to make us realize, God alone has saved me. And how did he do it? He caused us to be born again. Remember that conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. In other words, being born again is something that the spirit in his sovereign power does. You can't determine when or where he will act. He's acting according to his will in the hearts of people. You might ask, well, it's evident then that God causes some people to be born again and others not to, right? That's true. But then you might be tempted to ask, well, if God's good, then why wouldn't he cause everyone to be born again? And that's a fair question, but I would argue it's the wrong question. Because if we look at Scripture and we see God and His holiness and, our, and us and our sinfulness, the real question we should be asking is not why doesn't God cause everyone to be born again, it's why does God cause anyone to be born again? You see, we have such a lofty view of self, and we are so entitled that we fail to see we don't deserve the salvation we've been given. And we stand here as redeemed men and women only by the grace of God. And in that humility, we worship Him. In that humility, we give our lives to pursuing holiness for His glory. In that humility, we acknowledge that the way that God causes people to be born again is just like what Peter says in verse 23. He causes them to be born again by the imperishable seed of the word of God. And as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 10, it's through the preaching of the word that people get saved. In other words, we are responsible to share the gospel. God causes men and women to be born again. He takes these hearts of stone like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about, and He makes them hearts of flesh that begin beating with love for God. And when they hear the preaching of the gospel, they repent and believe. And that means that you and I, in obedience to Jesus' command, are to go and make disciples of all nations for His glory. This is the God who has saved us. The God of our salvation. He's not your buddy. He's not your co-pilot. He's not just the big man upstairs. He is the God of the universe and He is worthy of your worship. He is holy, holy, holy. And yet He has revealed Himself mercifully and graciously and lovingly In the person of his son Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead after death, so that every one of us who turns from our sin and trusts in Jesus will be raised to a brand new life spiritually here and now, and one day when Jesus returns to a brand new physical life with him for eternity. That's why we call for people to be baptized when they are put under the water and brought back up like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6, they are saying we are identifying with the one who died was buried and rose again. It's through His passion, through His death and resurrection that we have new life spiritually. And we have been raised His sons and His daughters. And we trust that one day He's coming for us and will raise us once again to live with Him forever. That is our hope in life and in death. Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. That is the God of our salvation. But that leads us to the second thing that I want you to see. And that is the greatness of our salvation. The greatness of our salvation. Not only do we need to know who God is for us, we also need to know what exactly he has done for us. In other words, what makes salvation so great? Again, you ask great questions here. So we answer them from God's word. What makes this salvation so great is that, number one, it's a living hope. It's a living hope. This isn't like false hope. This isn't like wishful thinking like, I hope the Cleveland Browns win the Super Bowl this year. Or I hope, or for that matter, the Dallas Cowboys as a Cowboys fan. Or I hope it snows on Christmas in North Carolina. Or I hope that Pastor Matt doesn't preach for an hour. It's not wishful thinking like that. It's real, solid hope. Why? Because our hope is not just a thing, it is a person. In other words, because Christ is alive, because he is risen, he is our hope. We have assurance that we belong to God. As one scholar puts it, Christian hope is ever living because Christ, the ground of that hope, is ever living. The present reality of the Christian's life is defined and determined by the reality of the past, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and is guaranteed into the future because Christ lives forevermore. Amen. It's because He is alive that you have hope. Why is this so important? Because if you are fixated on yourself and your circumstances, you will inevitably be disappointed. Not that I've ever struggled with self-loathing before, but for those of us who do struggle with self-loathing, it has a way of taking our eyes off of Jesus. But what worship does is it causes us to, like what the psalmist says, to lift our eyes to the hills from where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Or that's why the writer of Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. When we worship him, even though life is difficult and we are suffering, we are able to endure patiently because our hope is in him. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there is no guarantee that your circumstances will get better here. There is no guarantee that there won't be another stock market crash, that there won't be another global pandemic, that there won't be another social uprising, that you won't get cancer. There is no guarantee that your loved ones won't die. In fact, the trajectory of what Scripture is showing us is it's going to get worse before it gets better. You're saying to yourself, why did I come here this morning? Because our hope is not in the prospect of better circumstances but in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our life and our salvation. He is our living hope and having been hidden in Christ by faith we can say just as martyrs in the early church who went to the stake to be burned to death and they went there singing we too can walk through life worshiping because we know you may kill this body but you cannot kill this soul. I am safe and secure in the arms of God, and one day I will see Him face to face. That is the greatness of our salvation. It is a living hope, but it's also, as He says, an incomparable inheritance, or that is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In the Old Testament, the inheritance was reserved for the firstborn son. That's why you see so many squabbles taking place in the Old Testament over who gets the inheritance. But in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, but all are one in Christ. What does that mean? All of us who turn from our sin to trust in Jesus are treated as firstborn sons who receive the Father's inheritance an inheritance that, as he tells us, is imperishable. It's not like money that gets spent or houses that eventually fall apart or boats that sink or cars that go to the junkyard. It will last forever. It's undefiled, which means it doesn't have any sinful associations with it. It won't rust or mildew. It doesn't have any painful memories or relational strife attached to it. It's unfading. It will never lose its luster like the latest smartphone. It will never lose its sense of satisfaction like your favorite meal. It will never grow boring like that movie you watch every Christmas with your family. Both the fact of our salvation and the experience, the joy of our salvation, will not only not fade away, but it will increase all the more as we go to be with Him. There will never be a time where you're like, oh, this salvation thing is getting kind of old. We will ever be growing in our joy and our experience of His salvation for us. That is heaven. Heaven is saying, this can't get any better. Oh, it just got better and it's going to get better. Because we'll see Him face to face. And in seeing Him, we'll find everything that we need. How do we know? How do we know that we'll have this salvation? Well, Peter tells us, it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How do we know it's secure? How can we be sure it's kept in heaven? Because God's already given you a down payment called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that you will receive the full reward one day when you go to be with Him. Again, not because you deserve it, but because He's merciful and gracious. It's through Him, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Or I love the way Jesus says it in Luke chapter 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give it to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Some of us need to ask this morning where is our heart? What are we treasuring? I read several years ago an obituary in the Wall Street Journal of a a hedge fund manager who was wealthy rich. And he would go home to his 19-room townhome in Manhattan, and he would go on luxurious vacations. And yet, those who were close to him would note that he just seemed nervous. He seemed unhappy. He was always worrying. Even though he had more money than most of us will ever even see, he couldn't rest. As time went on, he went on a trip with his family out to Vail, Colorado to go on this luxurious ski trip to celebrate his birthday. And it seemed as if everything was normal and they came home and life Went back to normal for someone who has a $50 million home. And one day he got up, he dressed in his nicest suit, he went to work as he normally would, and later that day he went, checked into a hotel just down the street from where he worked, and he jumped from the 24th floor. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? You can have everything and have nothing if you don't have Christ. Peter is telling us here, if you are willing to let go of chasing after the world, God will give you something that can never be taken from you. Something that will never disappoint you. Something that will never fade away, never be defiled. But you must be willing to let go of your hold of this life and to put all of your hope in Jesus Christ in him alone. And that leads us to this final aspect of the greatness of our salvation, and that is that it is an imminent deliverance. What do we mean, imminent deliverance? We mean that just as you have been saved or justified, and you are being saved, sanctified, one day you will be saved, which is to say you'll be glorified. And on that day, when you die and go to be with the Lord, he will change you. But for the whole church as a whole, there will be a physical transformation when Christ returns. When he returns, when the skies part and he comes back for his people, we will receive the fullness of the inheritance that he's promised to us. When that day and time will come, only the Father himself knows. But because we have been given the guarantee or the down payment, we know it's coming. We can be sure, more sure than anything else in this life. The question is, are you sure? Edmund Clowney notes that salvation was sealed by Christ's resurrection and planted in our hearts by the seed of the word, will be revealed completely when Christ comes again in glory. Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. It is a salvation ready to be revealed, Peter says. It is coming, and it will come at exactly the right time. And here's the good news. God has given you a gift by which you persevere until that final day. And that gift is called faith. And not some sort of just wishful thinking, but faith empowered by God Himself. Isn't that amazing? He saved you, He caused you to be born again. He's coming back for you and will save you fully and finally. In between now, it's not just as if He says, We'll see if you can last. It's God saying, you must trust me. And oh, by the way, I will empower you to trust me. And that's why he tells us there that we are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. The question is, do you have that faith? And are you ready for that final day? As we draw our time to a close here in looking at 1 Peter, I want to encourage you to be intentional about a few things. Number one, if you never have before, I want to plead with you to make the intentional decision by God's grace today to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. I'm not talking about standing up and sitting down and reciting lofty prayers and performing traditions, I'm talking about in your heart before God, saying, God, I am a sinner and I deserve your judgment, but I trust that Jesus died for me and I want to live for you. And knowing that he will not cast you out if you will come to him in faith. Don't leave today without the assurance that you will be, take part in the resurrection through faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, I want to encourage you to be intentional to praise God. (laughs) And I really do mean praise Him. Wayne Grudem says that praise is a helpful remedy for hearts weighed down with discouragement because of suffering. Now, I know some of us struggle coming into a room like this and singing. Especially us men, we feel uncomfortable with that sometimes. But listen, everyone knows you're already bad at singing. So you might as well just sing. There's something about a heart that is steeped in the gospel that can't help but acknowledge God in worship. Sometimes saying things to God isn't enough. Sometimes it has to physically come from us in worship to Him. Worship when you're gathered here on Sunday morning. Worship as you're driving on your way to work. People can think you're crazy. That's okay. Everyone's a little crazy, but you're worshiping God. Praising God when you're sitting at the dinner table. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, Scripture says. So don't be afraid. Come and focus on Him. Stop your self-loathing and your introspection. Lift your eyes up to Him, the Maker of heaven and earth. Third, I want to encourage you to be intentional to meet with God's people because they are the physical reminder that God is with us and in us. God didn't just save you. Sometimes we we think that way because of the culture that we've grown up in. No, God saved you to be a part of a people. And when you come together intentionally with other believers, you're reminded that one day we all will rise together to be with the Lord and that He lives inside of us. Be intentional to gather with God's people. And finally, be intentional to share the gospel boldly knowing you are bulletproof until God's plan for your life is accomplished. I don't mean live reckless and foolish lives. I mean live with gospel boldness because you know, number one, God's plan for you will be accomplished. And number two, it doesn't matter what people do to this body if the soul is secure in Christ alone. That means you can offer up yourself to serve Him with boldness and assurance, knowing it is through the preaching of the gospel that men and women come to faith in Christ. Will we, as resurrected people who have the hope of eternity, be bold to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ? We will if we fix our eyes on Him and worship Him as He alone deserves. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for the salvation that you accomplished and secured for us in the person of your Son. Lord God, you know the hearts of each man, woman, and child in this room. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that in your mercy, you would cause them to be born again to a living hope through faith in Jesus Christ. That they would repent and believe today they would find one of our pastors, they would meet one of our volunteers at the next, step ta- next Steps table, but that they would walk away with the assurance that they belong to you. For all of us, Father, help us to know no matter what the circumstances of our life are, we have a reason to praise you. Thank you for your grace. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.